In the 1990s, Northwest Airlines offered an unusual round-trip passage aboard one of their planes. $59 brought you a mystery fare, a ticket that provided a one-day trip to an unknown American city. Buyers didn't find out where they were heading until they arrived at the airport the day of their flight. Still, the airline had plenty of takers. In Indianapolis, 1,500 people crowded the airline counter to buy the mystery fare tickets that were sold on a first-come, first-served basis. Not surprisingly, when buyers learned of their destination, not all were thrilled. One buyer who was hoping for New Orleans but found out he had a ticket to Minneapolis walked through the airport terminal yelling, I've got one ticket to the Mall of America. I'll trade for anything. Currently in Australia, there's a website that books mystery flights. Their webpage says, Add a sense of adventure and excitement to your next trip with a mystery flight deal to a secret Australian destination. Let your experienced travel consultant take care of everything. Simply select your departure city and venture into the unknown. I read that there's a website in process now uh, for offering the same kind of flights here in the U.S. Mystery fare tickets may be a fun surprise for a weekend, or maybe not. But normally, the last thing you want in a plane ticket is a mystery destination. Normally, you want to know where you're going because the destination is important. The one time you never want a mystery ticket for sure is on that day of our death. The one flight you never want to be a mystery about is your eternal destination. You don't want to face eternity uncertain about where you will end up. Nothing is certain but death and taxes. Benjamin Franklin said that in 1789. Of course, there are many things that we know that are certain. Christians know that there are many spiritual truths that are certainties. Therefore, we're able to say with certainty, I know that I have eternal life, and when I die, I will go to heaven. One commentator wrote, Will the believer who has generally been regenerated, justified, adopted by God, and united with Christ Jesus persist in that relationship? In other words, will a person who becomes a Christian always remain such? And if so, on what basis? The issue is considerably important from the standpoint of practical Christian living. If on one hand there's no guarantee that salvation is permanent, believers may exercise may experience a great deal of anxiety and insecurity that will detract them from the major tasks of the Christian life. On the other hand, if our salvation is absolutely secure, if we're preserved quite independently of what we do or what our lives are like, then we, then we may well be, as a result, uh, you know, a sort of lassitude or indifference to the moral or spiritual demands of the gospel. The end result may even be libertinism. Therefore, determining the scriptural teaching concerning the security of the believer is worth whatever time and effort may be necessary. And so that's where we're going this morning. That's where we're going to explore God's word today. And as we do, we will find out that our trip to eternity is not a mystery ticket. It's a certainty ticket. Because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Do you know that you can know for certain that you have eternal life? 
1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Today I want to talk about perseverance. Namely, as the old Reformed way of saying it, the perseverance of the saints. Or as we more commonly call it, the eternal security of the believer or assurance of salvation. The Westminster Catechism defines the perseverance of the saints as they whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. If you're accepted in the beloved, called and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, you will certainly be eternally saved even if you fall away. Because you cannot fall out of God's grace. Louis Burkhoff and his theology defined it as that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. It's also sometimes called the preservation of the saints. In some ways, that's even better because it causes us to think more closely about who is doing the preserving. Who is causing the perseverance of the saints? You see, God is the one doing the work. We have been saved by grace. We are kept by grace. We persevere by grace. And we will come to completion by grace. It's not us holding on to God, but God holding on to us. As you're walking across the street, holding the hand of your five-year-old of a busy street, is it the grip of the hand of the five-year-old that's keeping them safe? Or is it the grip of the hand of the parent that's keeping them safe? See, so God, our Father, grips his children's hands and he leads them and protects them. It's because of God's work in us that we continue, that we persevere in our faith to the end. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. See, we're not saved and then somehow now we're kept or secured by our own efforts. So often we unfortunately turn from grace after our salvation to law, to rules, to a list of do's and don'ts, to external markers of self-righteousness. Folks, we are always and only saved by grace. And we are always and only kept, secure, grow, change, persevere, and endure by grace. Galatians 3.3 comes rushing to my heart and thoughts like this. It says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Or as the New Living Translation says, how foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? See, the reason we can be sure, the reason we can have full confidence in our eternal destination is because of God. God saved us and God continues to save us. It's all about him, not about me and you. So let's look at some passage that clearly teach this truth of eternal security. And we will plainly see that the whole Godhead, the whole Trinity is at work securing our salvation and causing us to persevere in faith throughout our lives. The classic passage that so boldly teaches the security of the believer is John chapter 10. So turning your Bibles with me there to John chapter 10. 
starting at verse 27. This is Jesus, our Lord, speaking, and he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What an intimate passage. A beautiful passage of the words of our Lord to us. Jesus, the good shepherd, who lays down his life for the sheep, knows the sheep. He knows them. He knows us. This isn't like he intellectually knows we exist. No, this is a relationship word. He knows us because he's in a relationship with us and us with him. The knowledge is personal and deep. And what does he give to his sheep? Jesus gives his followers eternal life, and they will never perish. You know, this theological argument has really always been an easy one for me to understand. For me, as simple as I am, since God has given me this gift of eternal life through his son Jesus, as this passage says, as John 3.16 says, and other passages say, if God has given me something eternal or everlasting, how long is that? I mean, if Jesus gives his sheep eternal life and they will never perish, how long is that? It's eternal, right? The gift of eternal life is not something that starts and stops, begins and ends and begins again. By its very definition, it is eternal. One commentator wrote about uh, that clause there, and they shall never perish. He said that John uses the double negative which is a very emphatic way of declaring that something will not happen in the future. Jesus is categorically excluding the slightest chance of any apostasy by his sheep. A literal translation would be something like this. They shall not, I repeat, they shall not ever perish in the slightest. This assertion is followed by the statement that no one can snatch them out of Jesus' hand or out of the Father's hand. All in all, this passage is as definite a rejection of the idea that a true believer can fall away as could be given. Listen to that again. He said, this passage is as definite a rejection of the idea that a true believer can fall away as could be given. Let's put this sentence positively. A positive kind of guy. Let's say it positively. This passage is a definite affirmation of the truth that every true follower of Christ will experience eternal life. You see, Jesus knows his sheep. He gives them eternal life. He emphatically says that they will never perish. This earthly life is not their end, and no one can snatch them. No one can seize them. No one can steal them out of his hand or out of his father's hand. No one, not even themselves. This is the very clear biblical teaching. Now, if you got your Bible still open to chapter 10, let's just go back a few pages there to chapter 6, to John chapter 6, starting at...
For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. What powerful statements of the unity of the plan, of the purpose and the power of Jesus and his Father. Verse 39 and 40, this is God's will that everyone who believes, everyone who puts their trust in Jesus will have eternal life. Jesus will lose no one that the Father has given to him, but instead everyone that the Father has given to Jesus, Jesus will in fact raise them up on the last day, everyone, everyone. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn in your Bibles over there if you'd like to. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's an amazing word picture here that we're going to look at. Verse 5 is telling us that by God's power, he is guarding us. He is making sure that we will receive our salvation, our inheritance that is kept for us in heaven. The word guarding there is a military term. It means to keep under guard, to provide protection against the enemy, to garrison. It means guarding someone or to bring someone to safety from one destination to another. You see, God by his power is guarding us. God by his power is protecting us. God by his power is shielding us and keeping us until the completion of our salvation and our inheritance in heaven. It's an amazing, powerful, beautiful word picture of what God in his power is doing for all true believers. Well, we've seen that we are secured in Jesus' hand. We're secured in the Father's hand. That all whom the Father has given to Jesus, Jesus will raise up on the last day. And that we are garrisoned by the power of God until we reach our inheritance kept for us in heaven. Now we'll see that the third person of the Trinity is also directly involved in the eternal security of our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard of the truth, of the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit himself, think about this, the Holy Spirit himself seals the believer. He himself guaranteeing our inheritance. Ephesians 4.30 and 2 Corinthians 1.22 share the same truth. You see, back in Bible times, the seal of the king was the only way to know that the document was authentic. It was the king's seal that guaranteed 
that the document was his. So the Holy Spirit is the King of Kings seal on our lives, guaranteeing that we belong to him. We are his. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the great three in one are actively serving each true believer, making sure that their salvation will come to the fruition into eternal life. It's amazing, great news. Well, I want to look at one more passage. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible, Romans chapter 8. Turn there with me. Turn to Romans chapter 8. There's so much in Romans chapter 8 that points to this truth. We could read the whole chapter, but I'm going to start at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord Powerful, beautiful passage. It is God who chose us. It is God who justified us. It is God who spared not his own son to graciously give us all things. It is Jesus who died and who, much more than that, rose again and who is now interceding for us. So in light of all this amazing truth, what can separate us? From God's love. What can separate all of those who have been justified from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? From the powerful and poetic language of these verses, a simple answer can be given to that question. What can separate us from God's love? Nothing. Nothing can separate a true believer from the love of God. Not angels or demons, not trials or tribulations, not death or life. Nothing can separate a true follower from the love of Christ. What powerful truth for us to hold on to. John 1.12 says, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Once you're part of God's family, you're forever part of his family. A follower of Christ is an adopted son or daughter of God. We become his children and he becomes our father. We even become joint heirs with Jesus. You see, once you're part of God's family, you're forever a part of God's family. He saved us when we were still sinners. Romans 5:8. He knows that we will continue to struggle with sin even as we pursue him in our Christian lives. So think about this scenario with me. Imagine coming to Christ 
putting your faith in him, and then the next day, committing some sin. It shouldn't be that hard for us to imagine, right? It probably happened to each one of us. As a matter of fact, for me, I sinned within an hour before I got home on the day I gave my life to Jesus Christ. See, we lived in a trailer, and the trash container was on the back side of the trailer. I was nine years old, Saturday night, when my, dad, my stepdad had asked me to take the trash out. Well, it was dark. I was nine years old. I got spooked in the dark. The trash did not make it in the container. So as we're approaching home after church, some animal had gotten into the trash, and it was all over the backyard. My stepdad looked at me and said, Did you put the trash in the container? At that moment in my life, I was more fearful of my stepdad, and that fear outweighed most anything that I said. So I lied. I said, yes, I put the trash in the container. Within minutes, I was crying, confessing to my stepdad that I had lied to him and telling him that I was fearful of the upcoming punishment. It ended up to be one of the best moments uh, I ever had with my stepdad. He received my confession with grace, with forgiveness, and a hug. But less than an hour after my conversion, I told a lie. Just think if you were taught that now you had lost your salvation. Just think. One hour ago, part of God's family, a son, a joint heir with Christ, now, an hour later, condemned by my sin, out of the family, no longer a son, rejected, in the family, out of the family, saved, unsaved, accepted, condemned, rejected. No one runs their family that way, and surely God does not. There would be no relationship possible on a roller coaster ride like that. What about a marriage? Think about, uh, imagine a marriage relationship based off the same kind of scenario. One hour married. The next hour rejected, the next day married, the next day unmarried. There would be no relationship possible. I had a high school friend who believed she could lose her salvation. There were days that she would miss school so that she could stay home and get her relationship back to God. Churches and theologies that go down this road often come up with some kind of second work of grace that makes you nearly completely free of all willful sins. Because it's so dreadful. It's so exhausting. Day after day after day, getting resaved. You just can't sustain any relationship with God with that wrong theology. Folks, the clear teaching of the scripture is that when Jesus knows you, when you turn the leadership of your life over to him as your Lord and Savior, when you come confessing your sin and trusting in the his substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus gives you eternal life. And you can be assured that that salvation will have the final result of everlasting life in heaven. What a wonderful, great, biblical truth that we can rest in. But now wait. Wait. Red alert. You know, danger, Will Robinson. Houston, we have a problem. That's not all that the Bible says about eternal security. You see, salvation is not just some kind of transaction. Oh, I believe in God, I accept His Son, I confess my sin, then God gives me eternal life. It's kind of like this contract, 
I do my part. God does his part. I'm in. So now I can go on with the rest of my life. That's not salvation. Salvation is not simply walking down an aisle, praying a prayer, and your life, your goals, your purpose, your hope, your priorities, your actions, your attitude, your plans are never changed. Salvation is not just some kind of transaction. It's a complete transformation of our lives. You see, true salvation in Christ radically changes us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What is that old that passes away? What is the old? Guess what that old is? That old is us. The old is you. It's you that passes away. It's me. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. My old life, my old self has passed away. But instead, it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our spiritual journey begins with faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. And our spiritual journey is sustained by faith. The life I now live by faith in the Son of God. If the priorities of your life have never been radically altered by your faith in Jesus Christ, then you need to evaluate. If you've just kind of added Jesus to your life, he's over there in a nice little corner of your life. You kind of take him out when times are bad, or you take him out when you want something. But other than that, you just kind of live your life however you want to. If Jesus is just an addition to your life, then you need to evaluate. If this whole take up your cross daily stuff is for somebody else, then you need to evaluate. If the only evidence of your salvation that you can point to is a prayer that you prayed years ago because God has done nothing in your life, then you need to evaluate. If you're thinking, I'm saved, I got my ticket stamped, I'm going to heaven, but there's no difference in your life before you got saved, after you got saved, then you need to evaluate. The biblical truth is clear. Once saved, always saved. It's true. But the question is, are you really saved? One commentator wrote, in some evangelical circles, pastors have sometimes taught a watered-down version which in effect tells people that all who once made a profession of faith are eternally secure. The result is that some people who are not genuinely converted at all may come forward at the end of an evangelistic sermon to profess faith in Christ and may even be baptized shortly after that. But then they leave the fellowship of the church and they live a life no different than the one they lived before they gained this eternal security. He says, in this way, people are often given false assurance and are being cruelly deceived into thinking that they are now going to heaven when in fact they are not. When in fact they are not. What a powerful quote. There are strong warning passages in Second Peter chapter 2. There are five of them in the book of Hebrews. Romans 11.22, 1 John 2.19, and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. These are not passages about losing your salvation. We've already so clearly seen that once God has saved you, you are fully and completely saved. These are passages that are warning us 
to help us understand that it's very possible to think you are saved when in actuality you are not. Sadly, many people are professional Christians. They got the look, they got the book, they got the church, they even have the service. Everything from the outside looks like they're genuine believers, but it's just on the outside. What did Jesus say about professional believers? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. You never gave me your heart. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Are you a Christian on the inside or just the outside? Remember John wrote in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So let's take a very quick look at 1 John and see these three evidence that he gives in 1 John that you can know that you have eternal life. So turn in your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We'll look at the first evidence John gives us in this letter, starting at verse 3. 1 John 2, 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Evidence number one, that you can know that you have eternal life. Keeping God's commandments. It's one of the priorities of your life, keeping his commandments to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. We're not saved by our obedience. We're not kept secure by our obedience. But our obedience to God and his word is our expression of a living, hopeful faith that's alive. The question isn't, do you ever fail at keeping his commandments? The question is, are you trying Is his kingdom and his righteousness a a goal, the first goal, a priority of your life? Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you will love me, you will keep my commandments. Are you trying by the power of the Holy Spirit within you to grow in your relationship with God and the keeping of his commandments? Second evidence there in 1 John chapter 3. Verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. The same truth there in 1 John 4.20. It says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You can almost imagine John as he's writing this letter, right? Reminiscing in these thoughts. He's writing these words to that moment when Jesus looked out with his eyes there into the, into the heart of the disciples and he said to them, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just 
as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Evidence number two, folks, is that there should be a growing reality of love in your life for your church family. In each of our lives, to love your Christian brother or sister is a mark of a true believer. Forgiveness, encouragement, devotion, harmony, acceptance, understanding, agreement, humility, kindness, service, and compassion to one another. And in ever-growing quantities is an indication that you have a real faith. If you've been in a faith for decades, then your love for one another, your love for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ should be mature too. An evidence that you are a true disciple of Jesus is that you have real love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. This love supersedes any personality differences because it's love. It's divine love, agape love. Evaluate. Do you have a growing reality of love for your church family? The next evidence there is in 1 John 5, 10 through 12. It says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in the son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Do you have the son? I mean, right now, the only person that can answer that is you. I can't answer that for you. You can't answer that for me. Only you know, right now, in the depth of your heart, do you have Jesus? Does he have you? Has this love captivated your heart? Is your love and devotion for him a leading reality of your life? If you can answer yes to these questions, and verse 13 says, you can know you have eternal life. If you can't answer yes to these questions, then ask God to lead you to do whatever it takes to answer yes. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you in these moments, in these moments under the, the power of the teaching of your word. We thank you for the salvation that you've given to us through Jesus Christ. It is eternal. And we thank you for that. It gives us rest and assurance and confidence and true biblical anticipating hope. Lord, we thank you. But Lord, in our day and age, in Jesus' day, throughout all of time, it's been easy to pretend to be a professional Christian. To be one on the outside, not on the inside. Lord, we pray today that through the work of your spirit in our lives right now, that you would be challenging us, that you would be, you would be comforting those who would say, yes, 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 Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my Savior. You'd be confirming it, and it would be such a positive experience right now in their prayers to you. And to those who are not crying out, yes. Lord, may your spirit right now be calling out to them in love and compassion, holding forth 
your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. His name we pray. Amen.